Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday. Get that Sunday, yeah, December third. Back on the two thousand twenty-three. Is it only December third? It's the third. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Note yeah. the peace and quiet. Yeah. Well, there's no leaf blowers. There's no grizzling children. Right. Um, there's no baby. It's crazy. Yes. It's crazy. The, the, the ambiance here, right. all of the sudden. We've made it through the holiday, the first bout of holidays. Well, Thanksgiving. Look, we had a big crowd. Which For good, us, a big crowd. Which was good. Yeah. You know, three children, three grandchildren, uh, you know, coming and going. Spouses. Right. The whole drill. And uh, when we talk about grandchildren, we're talking about young grandchildren, we're talking about three, two, and zero. So, uh, you know, a lot I'm of... I'm not room. sure zero really makes mathletic expense. It kind of does. A few months old. How old is she's Hazel? She's not zero. What is she, three months, six months, what is it, four she's, months? She's almost six months. Almost six months. Yeah. Sitting up. Doesn't look a day over four months. Doesn't look a day over four months. Yes, she's, she matured. In the, in the few weeks she was here, she seemed to have progressed quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And on a percentage basis, she had. Yes, well. Compared to the other guys. And uh, so that that was really the fun of it. The um, interactions, everybody's developments, new smiles, new giggles Mm -hmm. uh, for the older ones, new words, new, uh, you know, miscellaneous achievements. Yes. Well, The the two older cousins, who are like two and a half, three, were like puppies. Mm -hmm. And that's just hilarious, you know, watching them kind of tumble around together, uh, physically and verbally, and run after each other, and run up to each other. Uh, So it uh, gives a new sense of life. Mm -hmm. Also, new sense of exhaustion to the house. Yeah. so that was... Uh, yeah, they literally sprint after each other in the house. It's, it's uh, something. And they're bare feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So really, the yeah. pitter-patter of little feet is gone. Yes. Now, uh, everybody's back at their homestead. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're uh, entering into the cleanup phase. Right. Well, look, this just happened. They just left uh, yesterday. So, you know, we are in the cleanup phase. But, you know, we'll be looking to welcome them back soon enough, so... We'll, we'll galvanize ourselves. Yeah, no, but it's uh, you understand the reason for the holidays is that it you know uh, it forces you to get together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it forces people to show up, and um, what you know, and it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's because they're showing up because we expect them mm. or they expect. To be here, or, or what it is, right. you know, um, they show up, mm-hmm. you engage, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it enhances everybody's lives. Uh, you know, everybody learns a little something. You right. step out of your normal roles mm-hmm. and uh, get reacquainted. Mm-hmm. No blood was shed, mm-hmm. uh, so it was. Uh, you no, know, it worked out well. It worked out well. It's a good thing. Yeah, I'm with you. So, uh, holiday music. We're beginning to get the Christmas music. It's like people couldn't wait until Thanksgiving. Well, first even. of all, yeah, we're now into Advent. Okay. We're on the march up to Christmas. Right. So, I did reintroduce Pepper to the concept of Advent calendars. Yeah. 
she was quite interested in the chocolate advent calendar. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know, called for a lot of questions about why only one each day, you know, <laughs> etc. <laughs> and then uh, she also, I also gave her a paper advent calendar with kitties on it. So she opens the little doors. You open a door each day of the month mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, working your way up to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I have my own advent calendar. You have a wine advent calendar. Well, sort of. Sadie sent a fabulous gift. It's yeah. actually called the 12 Days of Christmas. I see. But the Sadie and I are choosing to see it as a wine advent calendar. Right. And... It's a box with 12 half bottles of wine mm-hmm. in them, in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, as you open these 12 doors, you have half bottles. And of course, I love to take a half bottle to a BYO. Mm-hmm. Since you usually take beer, right. I, I take wine and I'm not going to drink a whole bottle. So, uh, so this is, for me, a terrific gift good good but yeah I know, I know you also have a paper advent calendar but uh, you have a real advent well, calendar i have several to be, to be it, are you serious yes. you have several different styles you okay. Know? yeah okay um so you know it's it's just a way of counting down yeah. to christmas whether you're religious or not it's like xing off the days on the calendar only uh it, yeah, in look, a more attractive way. I'd never seen an advent calendar, heard of an advent calendar before I met you. I mean, of course it's... not. You're Jewish. <laughs> well, yeah. We'll go into that more right. later on in the podcast. Yes. But uh, and I'm, and I have started listening to Christmas music. Yes. And we started playing a little Christmas music for the kiddos. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, turns out we were actually Hazel's pretty young. But there was one date night, and we were responsible for both Hazel and Pepper mm-hmm. uh, for a few hours. Mm-hmm. Hazel was not completely uh, at peace with this arrangement. Mm-hmm. and uh, But one of the things that calms her down a bit is music. Right. Okay. And so there was actually a little uh, um, article in the New York Times about uh, Christmas music, why people like it. And uh, the gist of it is, it seems to put uh, people in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you had bad things happen during Christmas when you were growing up, you associate bad things with Christmas music. It doesn't put you in a good mood, as, that, as it turns out. Right. But for, the, for those of us uh, who you know, have fond memories associated with certain... Uh, Christmas carols and songs and popular songs put you in a good mood. And uh, for people, it says here, for people who enjoy, find joy in Christmas music, the brain may increase serotonin levels and may secrete prolactin, a soothing and tranquilizing hormone that is released between mothers and infants during nursing. Oh, really? Yes. So it makes some sense. That Hazel would derive some comfort with the uh, music being played. Hmm. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, so other than that, it's a kind of a nothing article, and hmm. it uh, you know waffles. Yeah, about. I thought that uh, I saw the article. It, it does well talk about one of your big themes, which is the notion that the Christmas music that we hear today, or even the Christmas music associated 
with uh, the holiday and the three wise men and all that stuff is really part of a continuum that uh, was there was originally music almost certainly associated with winter festivals uh, before uh, the the advent of the holiday uh, because it well, was before a, there was a, Christmas. You mean basically the winter Druids. solstice, yes, uh, right. Yuletide celebrations that uh, were adapted right. into the role of Christmas celebrations. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, there's, you know, well, always. I assume there's always music associated with right. any kind of. Uh, Human ritual, so um, you know. But th- th- there's no question that you know certain songs meet certain. But but, but the other thing is, and didn't quite say this, and uh, maybe I, I infer this is probably not there. It seemed at one point to be suggesting that there's something about music that you hear uh, periodically, but over time you hear it every year, you hear it every eight months, that it kind of resonates in a different kind of way. Uh, that it brings you back, it kind of changes your state of mind. In other words, if you kept hearing yeah. something 4,500 yeah. times, you would just get sick of it. But if you hear it a certain amount, and you don't hear it for eight months, or nine months, or ten months, and then you hear it again, it resonates in a different kind of way. Well, let's be clear. Yeah. By the time you get to December 25th, you are sick of it. You are. Okay. But, but now you're you, not. And uh, you can be standing in a store waiting to make a Christmas purchase right. and uh, hear, uh, you know, um, Santa Claus is coming to town nine times mm-hmm. yeah. by various uh, right. uh, in, in various covers and you want to kill somebody mm-hmm. okay well you, that's you you're a <laughs> even bit. if you like even if you basically like the song yeah. um, but I think uh, you're right there's something about year to year right. there's something about certain songs taking you back I mean that um, that Fred Waring harmony um that goes back uh, to like the 50s for um, 50s, early 60s uh, for, you know, Christmas carol and uh, popular songs singing. Mm-hmm. Just immediately it makes me think of my childhood, my parents, mm-hmm. and that sort of uh, naive initial Christmas joy yeah. is there, you know. Uh, and uh, so... There's that association, but I think also that that repetition. You're right. Yeah. Over the course of years, it means something to you. Yeah. Resonates. Yeah, I mean. But I also highly suspect. Yeah. And I know nothing about music, obviously, but um, that certain there 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 are certain tones, combinations of notes, etc., that will. I guess, in my mind, chemically release <laughs> prolactin or whatever. Mm-hmm. That it's that that you can that certain certain music is just going to generate a, a certain feeling, no matter what. I don't know. I mean, well, you can't you know? Why does spooky music always seem spooky? You know, yeah. uh, etc. So I I think um, music has powers, and musicians who know something about that, composers mm-hmm. know how to manipulate mm-hmm. your. Uh, Feelings based on that. Yeah, it's, but that's a negative way to look. I mean, manipulate. Uh, no, 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 I don't just think. Just be no, get excited no, about music. No, no. I mean, I was listening. We we're listening to some classical music, even by accident. We we're playing the music for Bambi for the little kids, and they responded to the music. I mean, they responded to the narration, but even apart from the narration, they responded to the music, which was interesting because it's orchestral music. Yeah, but it's also it, uh, music uh, from the Disney yes, movie. Right. Okay, so. 
Disney knew what he was doing. I guess so. I mean, he was having he was writing music that would appeal to he, he not that he was writing it, right. but uh, his they were producing all of his music. movies yeah. have uh, music that appeals to young listeners. Yeah. So I'm sure there are certain uh, just criteria, mm-hmm. you know, rules and regulations for making this. That uh, I just don't even understand, but a, a real composer does. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, but anyway, actually, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's that simple. But uh, I don't think it's simple. But yeah. I think there. I think it is pretty um, straightforward. We'll, we'll yeah. have to talk to Mark about this. Yeah. But let me just say, let me remind you that one of the hits of of the holidays yeah. was our vinyl recording yeah. of. Bambi, the right. story of Bambi, right. narrated by Shirley Temple. Right. You know, not not a child's Shirley Temple, but, you right. know. And uh, it was appealing, mm. and the children like to listen to it. I don't even know how much they get mm. at their age, mm-hmm. uh, because there's no pictures, right? Right. But it was also the music written in the background there. I mean, clearly it had their attention. Well, that's why what I'm saying... Drip, drip, drop, right, right. When we... When we... But later when I played the music without the narration. Yeah. Well, sort of Pepper would say to me would say to me every five minutes, she says, Look, I'm saying, what's happening now? Yeah, she knows that she, this music tells a story. Right. She's listening to the music, she's thinking about it with me. She says, Oh, it sounds like something bad is happening. It sounds like something good is happening. Right. So it, it has power. All right. So um sports, quickly. Um here's a headline. Just a hockey game, every skater is ejected. There's a game between the uh, this is the NHL between the Senators and the Panthers, in which uh, at one point uh, with five minutes left in the game or seven minutes left in the game and it's a four nothing game not a close game, there is a fight and the um, the refs uh, throw out they, they basically penalize a couple players and then there's some fighting that continues and the referees say tell you what I'm throwing everybody out of the game. He basically, he penalizes everyone, gives him everyone a 10-minute misconduct. With seven minutes left in the game, he has thrown every player on the ice out of the game. So that ends the game? No, they have players on the bench. So the players on the bench finished the game, and the coaches were laughing. It was a 4 nothing game that became a 5 nothing game. It, wasn't, it didn't really change the outcome. But it's just funny that the ref just throws up his hands and says, that's not everybody off. Everybody's out. Everybody's out. We're not, you guys can't play anymore, which is kind of... Crazy, and the funny thing is that um, it started. It's tensions started building earlier in the period when uh, two players exchanged kind of looks and almost got into a fight. And the two players were uh, Brady Kachuk of the Senators and uh, Matthew Kachuk, his brother, on the Panthers. <laughs> and uh, they actually showed. Uh, they got uh, a shot on the screen in the stands of Geraldine Kachuk, the player's grandmother, who was spotted in the stands looking less than impressed. <laughs> now, I will tell you that I grew up watching Walt Kachuk uh-huh. playing for the Islanders, and that's Geraldine Kachuk's husband. Mm-hmm. And he was quite a good player for the Islanders. So there you go. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, all right, it's just a funny NBA story, um, uh, NHL story. But the NBA story has to do with they're having a tournament, an in-season tournament. I have resisted learning about this, but now I had to because they talk about it, and it doesn't make any sense to me. You always have a tournament at the end of the year. 
the championship tournament. See who wins the championship. You have the so-called playoffs. Now they're having playoffs slash tournament in the middle of the season. What could that be? Well, what they're doing is they're holding a tournament in the middle of the season, um, setting it up like it's a real tournament uh, in which there is going to be a winner. Um, and uh, the the games will count, the, the results of the games count into in the standings mm-hmm. that go on till the end of the year, mm-hmm. into the regular season and, and resulting in who makes the playoffs and don't. And yet it's in a, in a sense a freestanding tournament in which teams will get money. The winning team of the tournament will get money. The players on the winning teams sort of, you know, the, the money is a portion according to how far your team goes in the tournament. It's an idea of adding interest, mm-hmm. which is uh, kind of sad, really, because what they're really saying is, you know, we can't, uh, there's not enough intensity uh, on the fans' part, probably, but actually on the players' part, too, for the regular season. It's just a long, draggy regular season. No one really invests that much until the playoffs. This way, we throw a little excitement. The players will start playing harder for this set of games because they have an independent financial incentive based on this set of games. It's, it's, it's kind of nuts that they have to do that. And there have been some complaints about this, saying, don't these... First of all, the, the money doesn't compare to the... These guys are very highly paid, so it doesn't really change things for them. But beyond that... To the extent it does, you really, you can't stay motivated. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it also comes with new uniforms, which is um, a retail opportunity for the NBA. And I showed you the article which showed these new uniforms. It's completely different from the uniforms the teams normally wear. And, uh, you know, they're experimental designs, but the ones they wear during the tournament. It was just funny. They just published... Uh, a picture of all the team's uniforms, and they had comments in some of the sports writers. Well, they on. rated them. They rated them. They, they rated, rated them one the, to 30. Yeah, 30, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, yes, and uh, the Nets came in second to last. But they're funny comments. Um, and the first one, the Washington Wizards one, they look at it, they say, have you ever chewed five Skittles at once and looked at it? That's what this is. <laughs> and the Nets tour- jersey, they say, uh, well, they just say this is a bad jersey. The, the Lakers jersey, uh, it's like someone went to Joanne Fabrics and tried to make a custom Lakers jersey, but ended up not measuring it correctly. <laughs> I don't know what that even means. Yeah. The Memphis jersey, they say, someone on social media said the Memphis jersey is a QR code. Okay. Uh, the Indy jersey, when I think of Indiana, I don't think vibrant, which is what this jersey is. That's a problem. Um, yeah. Uh, And then finally, uh, the New York Knicks jersey, not highly rated. There's a lot going on here. Uh, Pinstripes, um, it it just doesn't make sense. Um, It's like the printer lagged out. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of a double image. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know if anything struck you about this, but it's just a a lot of funny things. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty funny, but I think uh, some of the comments are more meaningful if you know anything about basketball. So, I wasn't quite getting it. Yeah. Not, not, not that much more meaningful, but yes. Any event. Anything for a buck. What, what can I say? Nothing new there. Okay, so... Uh, oh, so there's an article that, that uh, I read this morning. Uh, it surprised me. It was in the New York Times Style Magazine. You know, the, they yeah, have I a magazine... I think it's funny that you even looked at the Style yes, Magazine. Yes, because Style Magazine... And the journal has a Style Magazine, you know, every month or so also. And they go usually go right in the trash. I mean, uh, they're like an advertising supplement, although it's usually a very thick formidable thing but and yet this issue of the time style magazine has a picture of a bunch of actors on the cover and they're uh, selected for the photograph because of all things they're jewish 
And the article is about, um, uh, well, here's the title. Let us tell you a story. What would American theater be without Jewish actors, playwrights, and directors? Um, by and Jesse Green. By Jesse Green. So, so that attracts my attention, Jesse Green being their theater reviewer. So it's not like it's, it's just a uh, non-substantive article. I mean, it's a theater-oriented article. And yet, it would strike me it's strange to write an article and say, gee, there's a lot of Jewish people involved in the theater. I mean, what kind of article is that? And of course, uh, that's not what the article is, because that would be a non-article. But it, it does, uh, I mean, it does make that point. Um, and it is uh, and it is kind of surprising, even when you think of the names of the theaters. The names of the theaters, they're all named after Jewish people. It's kind of weird when you mm-hmm. think about it. I mean, you have, now you have uh, the Sondheim, but you have the Rogers Theater, you have the Hirschfeld Theater, you have the Schubert Theater, mm-hmm. you know, you have the Gershwin Theater. Uh, it goes on and on. You never really think about it. But the real point is they tell the history of of uh, Jewish theater and Jews being involved in the Broadway theater, uh, going way back to the turn of the century. And with some suggestions about why Jews were compelled to get involved. Um, so what do you think is the main thesis of the article? I think the thesis of the article kind of gets lost. What was most interesting to me is is the point... The early development? The early development and the idea that Jews were drawn to the theater, Jewish immigrants in particular, were drawn to the theater from the word go. You know, they came over the beginning of the 20th century. And they were always drawn to the theater, and they always made up a substantial component of the theater audience, as well as the actors and the writers uh, and the theater owners, uh, etc. And, um, I mean, wholly disproportionate. They say the theater audience was 50% Jews, uh, they're talking about all the personalities that were Jewish. And obviously, uh, Jews are just a small minority of the population, even in New York. So, uh, and, and, there, and, and they give some reasons why that might have been the case, although I'm not sure whether they really hold water. But here's what's interesting to me of everything, right? When we, we have talked about this before, we have all these... Well, we've p- talked about early J- Yiddish theater. Yeah, but we've also talked about the fact that my parents have all these playbills and went to all this theater. Right. And we look at each other and say, how is this even possible? It doesn't seem to make any sense. They didn't have that much money. Why were they so invested in theater? And the answer, I think, is because they're Jewish, isn't it? I mean, is, 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 they fit into this yeah. pattern that they have Morty here. and Taffy are Jewish, too. That's they true. They didn't go. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't po- quite solve the problem. What's interesting to yeah. me is yeah. the one paragraph is talking about Lee Strasberg. Right. Okay, and uh, the whole invention of method acting. Right. And it's based on him going to Stanislavski's Moscow Art Theater, right. watching plays in Russian. And he doesn't speak doesn't Russian. Doesn't speak, doesn't speak Russian. Russian. Yeah, it doesn't but make any sense. It's obvious to him right. that the acting is amazing. Right. That the emotional expression, etc., comes through in a very profound, realistic way, whether it's humor or um, grief or, or whatever. Right. So that is interesting. He develops that whole idea of method acting with um, Stella, with Stella Adler, Adler and, and Harold Clerman, right? Okay, based on Russian theater. Right. The theater was founded by um, Stanislavski, Konstantin Stanislavski, who was Christian. Christian and an aristocrat. Yeah. 
Right. And yet, um, but, but, this whole but why? genre it still of Jewish theater grows out of that. But, I mean, it, it's just, but, but, it boggles the mind. But why? Is it still why? the question? Well, Jesse Green brings up some interesting points. Yeah. And one is about the immigrant experience. Yeah. And you have these immigrants, yeah. in, in some cases, you know, peasants or whatever, in in many cases, highly educated, um, talented people who cannot, uh, because they are immigrants, because they lack the language or the opportunities, yeah. um, cannot uh, participate in their professions, that this is a cultural outlet, that, that uh, right. it, it's as if um, their creativity, intelligence, um, etc. Et is funneled into the creation right. of theater. I think they I can th- participate right. in this. It's their own. Uh, it becomes their own cultural, cultural avenue. But expression. The word he uses is they are able to commodify their uh, their intellectual energies uh, in the form of theater, which is kind of. I agree with you. I think that's the most interesting point in the article. I agree with you, but it's, it's still somewhat speculative. But yes, I, I do agree with you. That's that's what he seems to say. That this was the avenue that was open to them, and so they poured their their energies into this. Um, now I think you're right about your parents to some extent. Yeah. That obviously um, theater is important in Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that is, and your parents were Jewish. Uh, so that, uh, you know, clearly influenced them. It's mm-hmm. still kind of a mystery uh, that they were into theater as much as they were. Um, I'm curious about their other friends. Uh, what were the um, circumstances that really caused them Well, to look, be... I'll just tell you, it's not like my parents ever said to me, you know, uh, we, we had this, you know, unique interest in theater. They, they just, it was very matter of fact. We went to the theater, like everybody went to the theater. The theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. But it, 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 he does make a convincing case that uh, the theater both on both sides of the stage was dominated by Jewish interest. And... Um, you know, he's not trying to say it's for good or for bad. He's not saying, you know, the Jews are owed anything for developing theater or anything like that. He's just saying that that's, uh, that's the fact. That's I what it was. he is saying it was for good because a much higher level, sophisticated level of performance and acting yeah. grew out of this. Yeah. The, 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 um, the, the style of uh, performance, that sort of uh, music hall... Um, Limitations of you know the waspy performances previous. Well, I, uh, I don't I don't want to put down waspy performances, but yeah, no, but I, I mean, it was it, it was a particular style <laughs> and um, it, it, that lacked the nuance. Yeah, uh, that uh, method acting was able. Well, to Well, what's interesting too, out. and he links the method, and, and we're all familiar with method acting in the phrase, but he links he links the various schools to more modern actors. So he he has. Uh, you know, at one point he says, you know, there's, of course, Brando is a Strasbourg protege and uh, Duval, I forget which, might have been a Clerman protege. And even uh, Meryl Streep is a Meissner protege. I mean, uh, it goes right up to the present time. So he also talks about um, that uh, many uh, popular plays, musicals written by Jews, yeah. but not about Jews. Right. Okay. But uh, so that was interesting. That you know, how are things in Glock, 
Glockamora. It's written by Yip Horberg, who's not who was Jewish. Jewish. His, his real but name not about, being Yip Horberg. I, I, you know, um, an Irish immigrant. Yeah. In uh, the South, kind right. of thing. Right. Um, and and I, I think there are commonalities in the Jewish experience and these other experiences they're describing. Well, he's but, but he links that to the notion of uh, a reluctance, uh, a concern about uh, Jewish writers writing something that seems uh, so clearly uh, directed toward Judaism or focused on Judaism that in a sense they feel that they want to write something that is apart from that because otherwise it's less it's not going to be accepted. Right. Yeah, right? we like to think that we, you know, that uh, um, writers uh, are expressing themselves right. about themselves, about their lives. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, they're feeling... This is not... Well, look, it's, it's sort of like, you can go back to Mel Brooks and people make a joke once in a while and he'd look up and people would laugh and he'd say, what, too Jewish? You know, uh-huh. I mean, that's, that was a concern. You wanted to stay within a certain boundary. Um, so. but, but explain to me the, um, the problem with that he mentions about Fiddler on the Roof. Got bad reviews from people... Not from Jewish experts, but from well, the Jewish community. I, I thought they thought to it was some extent. They, they, they thought felt it was too, too, it was too on the nose, and, and and I think I think what happens is if you write about something that people experience directly uh, in a profound way, there's always the risk that to put it on the stage or in a movie is to trivialize it automatically, and you know that uh, you know to have it to have people singing about you know the czar is coming, you know, is just a little much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's too soon, as they mm-hmm. like to say, yeah. and also about the conflict between uh, the concept of having uh, uh, Jews always um, often um, portrayed as uh, survivors, um, always overcoming yeah. something. Yeah, I well, mean, the, he, he the, seemed the, to think that was. Well, but because it becomes uh, too familiar, and it, it's it's become sort of a cliche, and it's frankly, it's not a role that people are comfortable with, particularly uh, post World War II. I mean, the, the idea about Jewish victimhood is is kind of not something that's celebrated, honestly. But he does mention like uh, quite a few musicals. Uh, you know, it, it's just when I just never thought about it that much. Yeah, but a, a lot, a lot, a lot of the music. Um, that I love from the Broadway stage um, that's written, it has nothing to do with any Jewish subjects at all, written by right. a Jewish... Well, you could go artist. into it too. You could also, you know, there's also, it, a lot of it's written in a minor key, which is, is a lot of the Jewish prayers are written in a minor key, and they say that's the beginning of it. He doesn't have that in this article. That's that's, mm-hmm. that's from other sources. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, if you wanted to name, you know, the, the big, the biggest writers of, of music, Broadway music, you're talking about Stephen Sondheim, Richard Rodgers, people like that, and mm-hmm. uh, George Gershwin. Uh, there you go, right? So uh, anyway, it was, it was an interesting. So it's article. an interesting article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's and a long article, and uh, you know, for the Times, a reasonably intellectual article, and uh, to find it in the style section is shocking, shocking. I don't know. They must have debated. It must have been written for the arts and leisure section. And they said, you know something? No. <laughs> we're not putting it there. I, I think it must have been longer because as we both discussed, there there were many pictures with the article. It didn't fit the text. The, um, the, the text yeah. doesn't refer to it. Yeah. There's something going on here. 
There were photographs from performances and yeah. plays that he doesn't. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Arts and Leisure, it belongs in the Arts and Leisure. But he, he brings up a lot more um, interesting um, observations than we're mentioning here. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, it's worth a read. Uh, Jesse Green. Yeah, uh, and, the, and and a lot of it I don't agree with, but it, but it, and, and you know just it starts with a picture, or a photograph of all these uh, contemporary Jewish actors and theater contributors, which is nice, but it's kind of silly to say, look, a lot of Jews. I mean, okay, we kind of knew that, but uh, there you go. Um, that's the starting point. Okay, I I recommend it. I thought it was you pretty recommend. interesting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you had an article using a phrase I didn't know. That I didn't know either. Which is snowplow parents. Yeah, I read an article um, in the New York Times saying, yeah. will online uh, grade books be the, you know, the death of... Uh, uh, online grade books? Grade books. Oh, grade, grade books. books. Okay, yeah. You know, are they um, uh, giving too much, uh, are they, you know... Making things, I guess, uh, too easy mm-hmm. uh, for the snowplow parent to, uh, you know, ruin their child's education, basically. Yeah. So a snowplow parent is? is, as opposed to a helicopter parent yeah. who is hovering about, right. you know, uh, supervising constantly, snowplow parents... Uh, remove all attempt to remove all obstacles. Ah, ah, okay. okay. Don't want to let the kids experience any failures. Right. So the idea is with the online grade books, kids are getting, and I guess the parents too. The parents maybe can have access to the app, I guess, and uh, can kids get the grades immediately and the parents are supervising and seeing every grade and uh, getting in there, putting, you know, uh, getting on their kids for what the grades are. And they have these horror stories of, you know, uh, you know, the kid very distracted in class and, uh, you know, teacher says, what's the problem? The kid says, uh, well, you haven't posted my grade for the makeup work that I did. And my mom says I'm grounded if uh, it's not online by tonight <laughs> or something like that by this afternoon. Um, so it's really, uh, again, giving parents, uh, you know, access to the grades. Just by virtue of the fact that the grades are online as opposed to on a piece of paper? Yeah, because um, I guess if you... I guess this applies mainly, hopefully, to high school students, oh, okay. right? High school students are not bringing every paper home to I mom see. and dad, right? right? Um, and uh, the, the times when it's a problem really is, um, you know, more like if parents are getting involved in every little uh, assignment, mm-hmm. okay? And if the, if the students are not allowed to sort of perform how they're performing if it's not a true assessment hmm. uh, um, then they don't get a chance to you know learn really yeah, yeah. right you yeah. agree um, and the parents are getting in there and uh, complaining about a grade on an incidental perhaps an incidental thing that's not even going to you know uh, affect mm-hmm. Uh, the total average mm-hmm. at the end of the day or mm-hmm. whatever sometimes it's a matter of timing like uh, the um, teachers, the teachers can control 
Well, you know that. You can control when your grades are posted. Sure. All right? Yeah. So if you do it in... in uh, you can do it in uh, a way that, um, you know, releases the grades at uh, a certain point yeah. so that uh, everybody gets their grade at the same time. Well, that's what I do. Or a bunch yeah. of incidental grades may all come in a group uh, at the end of the week or the end of, you know, the two weeks or the end of the um, section mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, rather than giving fodder. Uh, to the snowplow parent to attack mm-hmm. every little thing. I guess the intimation is uh, these grade books perhaps give too much access to the parents. Well, do they also talk so about the, the parents then contacting the teacher and saying, what's right. the story with this grade? Right. Well, that that's the snowplow stuff. Right. That's the snowplow part. Yeah. Okay. So the parents, because they have access to these grades, the parents are, you know, now saying, well, and, and we've, uh, you know, We've experienced that, and we've uh, you know heard of uh, and you know Nico yeah. is uh, teaching right. And, we're talking uh, about younger kids now. We're talking about eighth or ninth graders. Yeah, but that, yeah, but I, I think this uh, includes that sort of mm-hmm. uh, period, and parents rushing in and saying, "No, no, 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 no!" I, you know, um, we have known parents who wanted to get a grade changed regardless of whether. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. It was sure. warranted there, there's a, or not. There's a, simply don't there's want... There's a great tradition of that, yes. A, a C yeah. on the books for their kid. Right. Uh, even if it's a, a not a very important grade and so on. So anyway. It is funny because I just got... I get emails from Temple about grading and they say... They talk a good game. They say, we want, uh, you know, a certain range of grades and 20% of them ought to be C's and stuff like that. And they mm-hmm. lose it now. That, that only applies to Lord's courses and exam courses. doesn't apply mm-hmm. to me. But uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised they say that because I, I can't imagine in this day and age uh, the outcry that would result if you gave 20% of the kids C's unless uh, Temple is just different than it is a lot of other places. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I can't. Uh, but Yeah, but, it, you know, it's isn't it sort of impossible that everybody would deserve an A or a B? It is and it isn't. Uh, there's a lot of grade inflation, and uh, right, so what? So we don't want to see grade. I mean, that look, it's such. I a can tell you where, where, where we went to college. They don't give out too many C's. I don't think. Yeah. So uh, it is a dice. That's, that's a bad thing. They they call the um, they call it assessments. They don't even call them tests and exams. Mm-hmm. You know, in the learning management system, they are assessments, right. which is. Nice if it truly is an assessment, if you're certainly, and that's what a grade should be. Right. It's looking at what the student has absorbed and is able to. Right. Um, well, I'll tell you what I tell the students in my class. And I say to them, look, you know, I'm going to give you detailed comments. We're going to sit and have conferences. And, and let me be as clear as possible. I'm not interested in grades at all. I know that you're interested in grades, and therefore I will take the grading seriously. But when we have a conversation, when I make marks, I'm not thinking about grades. I'm thinking about improving your skills. And I want you to look right. at it that way. Right. You have to divorce the two of them. Right. In order to get anything out of it. Otherwise, the conversation is just, well, maybe that's you're being a little harsh here. Can I get a higher grade? I'm not having that conversation. But if all the way through uh, middle school and high school, kids have just been getting what their parents demand they yeah, get. Well, then that's a problem. That's, uh, that's a problem. No, and I also, you know... Um, ethically, uh, psychologically, whatever, 
don't believe in removing all obstacles. No, of course. Right. I, you know, you don't want to put, ever put a child in danger. Yeah. But they need some challenges. Sure. They need some disappointments. They need to develop strategies to yeah. move on. They need to be able to fall down once in a while. And pick themselves up. And, pick and themselves. start all over right. again. Well, I've seen them fall down and pick themselves up, so I know it can be done. Um, just recently. Anyway, so let me wrap this up. We don't have... I know, we've been blabbing on. No, no, no. I Sorry. just have a couple book things, but I'm not going to dwell on it. One, uh, See, I'm, I'm getting all these book ideas, but you know, I'll never get to them. One is about this guy. There's an article about a book idea named, for writing? For reading. Oh, it's a fellow named uh, Mick Heron, who uh, was a guy who had no success. And, uh, you know, he had kind of a, a job in the Oxford Library System in, in the UK. He went on the dole for a while. He was a copy editor at a firm that published reports about legal proceedings. He had a long commute. He started to write. He had trouble finding a publisher. A publisher, what he found one, dropped him. And uh, then uh, suddenly, uh, one of his uh, books got noticed by NPR. They gave it a, a, a rave review, and that book was uh, Slow Horses. And Slow Horses is the book upon which this very successful TV series on Apple TV is now in a third season. Uh, book chain made Slow Horses at that time a book of the month. Uh, now Slow Horses has sold 700,000 copies. He has uh, sequels to Slow Horses. He has other books besides. He is uh, an extremely successful writer. He's what's called a literary superstar with total sales surpassing 3 million copies. It's kind of an interesting story. I mean, I'll have to read Slow Horses. Uh, they say it's kind of an offbeat spy thriller, that it's based on characters who are kind of... Uh, over-the-hill spies, but perhaps not as cutesy as, uh, you know, a U.S. movie on the same subject might be. Okay. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting story. The guy's a very odd guy. He's, he's a very introverted fellow, with trouble promoting his own stuff. He says uh, the nice thing about this, other than the money, it's just giving him some self-confidence. That's good for him. And the other article about books, here's a headline we like, Bosch and the Lincoln Lawyer to the Rescue. Uh, yeah, the other night when I went to bed, you, you were settled in. You were about to watch Bosch. one of your favorite series, and that's Bosch. Bosch. I'm tired of Bosch. To me, they're all the same at this well, point. No, they, well, but you still love him. I, I, well, I, I like Bosch. Harry Bosch. Harry Bosch. He's, a, he's an L.A. detective. And uh, six or seven seasons of that. Um, but what's funny is that a few weeks ago, I was looking for something different. And I happened, about something, happened upon something called The Lincoln Lawyer. And so I watched Lincoln Lawyer, which is, was originally a movie with Matthew McConaughey, but they made it into a series. And uh, I'm watching this, and I'm saying, this is pretty good. And I'm saying, this reminds me of something, reminds me of something. What does it remind me of? And I said, it reminds me a little of Bosch because of the area of L.A. and kind of the tone of it, although it's not nearly as serious as Bosch. It's a little more lighthearted, uh, Lincoln Lawyer being a lawyer who's a defense lawyer. And then at the end, I see the credits, and I realize it's written by the same person, Michael Connolly who wrote all the Bosch novels. Uh, so they are linked together. And then I see this headline, Bosch and the Lincoln Lawyer to the Rescue, which means that Michael Connolly has written a new book in which he includes both characters in the same book. Yeah. You've got Michael Connolly, who, Harry's his brother, who hires his brother-in-law, Harry Bosch, to I help smell, him in investigation. I smell Hanukkah gift. Yeah. 
Uh, well, you know, with the Kindle, everything's ruined. But yes, uh, $30, a little and brown. But uh, so there you go. I'm excited about that. So I have that to read plus McCarran's book. And finally, so there's a lot of people passed away this week. Well, Henry Kissinger died. Henry Kissinger died. He was 100 years old. Well, that, that, and of course, our, our um, you know, occasional contributor, David Gompert. Yeah. Uh, worked under Henry Kissinger yes, for several years. He was an aide to Kissinger. Yes, um, in the seventies. Right, and uh, so I have been looking at all the pictures for David Gompert in the background. Uh, you know, every time there's a picture of uh, Henry Kissinger, yeah. you know, meeting so and so and some important uh, um, political powwow. But you haven't found him. I yeah. sort of think I have. But I'm oh, sure. do you really? Yeah. Okay, so. Um... Well, the interesting thing about Kissinger, as it happens this week, Rosalind Carter passed away, um, Sandra Connor passed away, uh, several notable people passed away, and they have their respective obituaries. The Henry Kissinger obituary was remarkable. They had a two-and-a-half-page obituary on in the middle of the week, and they said, we'll give you the full obituary tomorrow, which I've never seen before. And sure enough, the next day, which I guess was Thursday, they had a five-page obituary, five full pages in the New York Times, Henry Kissinger obituary. I have never seen an obituary that long for anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows you the influence well, of Henry Kissinger. Well, they a page to Jerry Garcia. Yes, but, and yet... And- and yet, let me, my point being, Sandra Day O'Connor might have been three quarters of a page. Henry Kissinger, five pages. Yeah. All right. So um, there was a lot to say. And, it was, and by the way, it was a very interesting obituary. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting life. And, uh, you know, a lot of pluses and minuses. But in any event, I was just, another fellow passed away this week, happened to be Charles Munger, who was um, the fellow who worked with, uh, with Warren Buffett. Uh, in Berkshire Hathaway, and Warren Buffett, of course, being the famous prophet of uh, Ohio, was it Nebraska, of Omaha, Nebraska, you know, investment advisor, and Berkshire Hathaway being this runaway success investment firm where uh, people, uh, principally uh, Munger and Buffett, made zillions of dollars over the years following a particular investment strategy uh, based on, on so-called homespun wisdom to some degree. You know, Buffett in particular, you know, presenting an image of uh, an avuncular image as opposed to some kind of hedge fund sharpie, uh, giving, you know, advice and espousing modicums about X and Y and bromides about this and that, and Munger also, and leading to tremendous financial success. I mean, Munger is kind of an interesting figure, and I never put this together, but Munger was a lawyer, and in his name, there's a famous LA firm called Munger Tolls. That's Charles Munger. That was his firm. And what happened was he had a successful law firm in L.A., but uh, then his, his, his life kind of went on the rocks. He, uh, he divorced. He had a young child pass away. Um, and he was uh, kind of at loose ends. He certainly had no money. And he started investing, and he started making money investing. And he met up with Warren Buffett, which is a tremendous coincidence because they were both born and grown up in Omaha, Nebraska. And Charlie Munger worked at the grocery store owned by Warren Buffett's grandfather, but they didn't know each other growing up. Mm. And it only was years later when uh, Warren Buffett returned to Omaha to sort of bury his father that he was at the so-called Omaha Club or something, and he met Charles Munger. And the two of them started talking, and they realized they had an affinity, uh, and they went on from there. And uh, there are a lot of, you know, his approach to investing is pretty common sense, and uh, I'm going to say I use a lot of the principles, but 
I don't have $2.6 billion. So it's not exactly the same thing. But he has one thing that I think is quite true, one quote they have here. And it's really from Buffett. Buffett said that uh, Berkshire's Hath- Berkshire Hathaway's investing approach was Charlie's. And this is this is these are the words of Warren Buffett. He said, the blueprint that Charlie gave me was simple. Forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. Instead, buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. In other words, Buffett was buying what he called cigar gut companies, cigar butt, one puff left, and hoping to have some kind of miracle become valuable, in which case he's going to hit a home run. And Charlie Munger said, no, 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 no. Buy a company that you like. Buy Coca-Cola, if that's what you believe in. Buy American Express. If you get a fair price for it, that's where you make your investments. And that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And that's where they made their money. So, uh, again, in retrospect, it seems like a very simple and effective strategy. But, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it. But uh, there you go. Anyway, very interesting guy. So, um, that's it. That's it. That's plenty. Uh, we have to go watch the Eagles play San Francisco. Uh, and uh, we should sign off. Okay, then we will. This is Samson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Samson and Dan read the paper. See you next week.